I didn't realize we weren't going out. That always makes me nervous, wondering about that. So anyway, uh, let me back up here and get started over again. I wonder if the sense of the power of the air is getting disturbed with some of the messages that we are giving out lately and is doing his best to stop them. I just covered a section here about uh, the enemy's gathering. They don't like the message, perhaps, uh, that is being given. All right. Uh, we have spent several sermons now on the book of Micah, and I want to try to finish it up today, uh, everything willing. But a brief survey very quickly here uh, to review. God indicts through the prophet Micah Israel and Judah, Samaria and Jerusalem for sin, and he zeroes in somewhat on the leadership of both Worldwide Church of God, in this case Israel, and the split Samaria. He does not like the leadership that he is seeing, I believe, in either case, because he addresses the whole house of Israel, the whole Israel of God, the church. So he goes through about three chapters of that. Then he begins to initiate the idea of the times of restitution of all things. When God is going to put the church, or at least the remnant of the church, back together in the personage of a daughter of Zion, which Proverbs 31 says excels them all, and to this daughter of Zion, the remnant will come, as Haggai and other scriptures show, and we'll see that as we get on into the series. But she will be given first dominion, that is, first rule, first leadership in the beginning of restoring peace and unity in the church of God, and that is the bride of Christ, as we enter this in, or as we continue on into this end time prophecy, or this end time period of time that we have now entered. She is instructed to be in pain, to travail, to give birth, to holiness, to become like Christ, for she is to be his bride, and that is what we are travailing to do, is produce Christ-like character in ourselves to be like him. She is also to produce the new temple, to bring forth the latter temple, as the current temple is being destroyed. As we get on into uh, chapter 4, it talks about how her enemies will gather against her in verse 11, as she attempts to restore that which is correct and right. Verse 13 says that she is to, ri to arise and flesh, that she is not to sit back passively, but that she will be given dominion over her enemies. And we'll see that more clearly as we go. Now I want to go back and use a companion scripture to add some strength to this, and it's a chapter which has been pretty enigmatical, enigmatic uh, throughout, perhaps, the centuries. It's Ezekiel 17, and it talks here that Ezekiel is supposed to put forth both a riddle and a parable. Now, that's double jeopardy. Sometimes it's hard just to understand Christ's parables about the kingdom of God, about the church, about himself, about his bride in the New Testament. And, and yet he is the same one who wrote the Old Testament through these prophets and various other men. 
uh, and produced a parable here. And it is a parable about the church, which is in keeping with the way he approached it in the New Testament. It is to the house of Israel, which we understand as the Israel of God today, the church. And if you are still a bit lagging in your thinking along these lines that these prophecies are speaking to the church, just wait until you see how closely this fits, how every piece of this puzzle fits the church today. And when we get done, I think you'll see that the riddle is solved, and very clearly so. Now, what is the context to begin with? Ezekiel 16 is just before it which is a strong indictment of the bride of Christ and how she has gone whoring after others and how he will punish her, but how he will also swaddle her and take care of her and restore her eventually in spite of her sins that he will forgive. So that is the setting before he starts his parable and riddle of chapter 17. Now let's get into it, and I am going to attempt to interpret this as we go instead of going through the whole thing and then coming back through it and saying what I feel that it is talking about, I'll just go ahead and, and do it all at once. And uh, as you follow along, perhaps you'll begin to see what I'm talking about if you haven't already read it and understood it ahead of time. So, verse 3, And say, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings. This I believe to be Herbert W. Armstrong. A leader or a king is typified by an eagle, especially a great leader, or great in whether he be great in character, or whether it is just great in terms of those he rules over, the size of the group that he leads, because there is some uh, strength in the analogy here to lend itself to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who was in that sense a great leader, though he had lousy character. But the commentaries do not apply to the church, even though my King James Bible here does talk about the gospel here and uh, refer to it as the church. Amazing. But a great eagle with great wings, Herbert Armstrong, long-winged, full of feathers, which had different colors, so it, it had great reach, many feathers, uh, not just a few feathers, and that those feathers were of many different colors. That is, his influence spread to all languages, tongues, peoples around the world. He came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar, the church or the temple, is the type here and of the cedar. And it is interesting that the, the campus in Pasadena had quite a few of the great stately cedars of Lebanon. Mr. Armstrong liked to point that out to people because of the analogy in the Bible of the cedars of Lebanon and how so many of them were used in the building of the temple of God in Jerusalem. So that is in here. Cedars were used to build the temple. He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. So he began to be involved with the church in Oregon and took a few twigs from there the, the, the biggest body of the church that was left alive at that time, even though it was perhaps somewhat dead, <laughs> term Sardis. But that's what he became involved with. And carried it into a land of traffic, he set it in a city of merchants. That is a good description of Los Angeles. And it will get to be an even greater description as we go on through here. Great port city. 
He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. So he took of the people of Israel, sowed them, and then began to reap that. It was planted in a fruitful field, an area of doctrine, an area of belief that was fruitful to God that had rich soil. He placed it by great waters, that is, proper doctrine and the word of God, and set it as a willow tree. A willow tree grows, and he mixes his metaphor a little bit here, cedar to willow. The willows grow near water. Even as we sing the song, By the waters of Babylon, there we wept and cried and hung our harps on a willow tree, and so on. So there is captivity involved here. We'll see that as we continue. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. It didn't become a stately cedar that the whole world would look to. It became a spreading vine that spread over a great area. didn't have a great deal of fame from the world. In fact, the religions of this world persecuted and hated and did not like it, ridiculed it as Jewish or however else they termed it. Whose branches turned toward him. We all look to Herbert Armstrong as the leader. He was the overall leader of the church, hands down, no question. And all the branches turned toward him. And the roots thereof were under him. So this vine was very, very much dependent upon its leader. Now, of course, I understand Jesus Christ built the church and he is the overall leader. And that is always behind this, but he does use men. And as a physical personage, Herbert Armstrong was unquestionably the leader. So it became a vine and brought forth branches, branch offices all over the world, and shot forth sprigs, local congregations here, there, and everywhere. Verse 7, there was also another great eagle, not an eaglet, not that which this eagle produced, but another great eagle in that sense in its own right, with great wings and many feathers. Doesn't talk about the colors and so on here. And behold, this vine did bend her roots to him. So the vine that Herbert Armstrong built began to bend its roots toward another leader. Toward Protestantism is an ideology. Toward some of those under Herbert Armstrong who began to teach and preach Protestant doctrines. When he came back from his illness and began to regain some strength, Mr. Armstrong realized that the branches had begun to turn away from him and turn toward others. He fought it and fought it. And it was very, very difficult to try to put it back on track, as he said. So they started to grow toward this new eagle and shot forth her branches toward him that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. It was planted in a good soil by great waters. So the church had been planted in fertile soil, good doctrine, it was all there, that it might bring forth branches and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. So this new leader who was appearing on the scene had every chance to cause this vine to flourish and to produce fruit. But is that what happened? Say you, thus says the Lord God, shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof, that it wither? 
so he was going to do damage to the church that he was supposedly going to lead. It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring, even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. It wasn't like, uh, let's say, 50,000 people grabbed hold of it and jerked it out of the ground and caused it to wither, but just a few men at headquarters began to cause this thing to wither and die. You know how the wind will blow against something and pull it up a little bit and then it slowly begins to die? Yea, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not utterly wither? When the east wind touches it, it shall wither in the furrows where it grew. Now let's tie Jeremiah 18 into this a little bit. Jeremiah 18. And I believe I want to begin in verse 15. Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity, they've caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, the truth, the faith once delivered. Verse 17, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. We wonder why we have trouble getting prayers answered. Then said they, Come and let us devise devices against Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah, see, said you are going to be scattered. You are going to be punished for sin. They did not like to hear that message. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. The ministry said, oh, we're not going to change anything. God will still bless us. And then they changed everything, and God didn't bless. And now those who broke off from worldwide are beginning to change things. And God is becoming angrier and angrier with them. Treacherous Judah, sister Judah also. Come and let us smite him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. We don't want to hear that kind of message, they said. But that kind of message needs to be heard. All right, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house. Now, who is the rebellious house? There's only one place or one book in the Bible that talks about the rebellious house, and it's Ezekiel, and he does it several times. Uh, let's go back to chapter 2, begin in verse 3. He's talking, he's addressed the house of Israel. He said to me, Son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even to this very day. They are impudent, stiff-hearted. I do send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there has been a prophet among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns be with you, and you do dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. And then he tells Ezekiel not to be rebellious and, and uh, dare not to preach what God had told him to preach. So a strong message needs to be heard. And that's the way Ezekiel is addressing the house of Israel, the Israel of God, the church today. Say now to the rebellious house, Know you not what these things mean? Do you understand? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem. Jotakach has come to Jerusalem, the church. 
the second eagle, and has taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon. The whole church began to slide, and Herbert Armstrong was sort of caught up in the vortex of it. He was struggling against it, but the church was sliding that way in spite of him trying to get it back on the track. And inexorably, it pulled him to some degree along with it. He fought it and fought it and fought it to the death and never was able to get it back to where it had been. He was helpless before the onslaught of false doctrine that appealed to people. Love, love, no works, Trinity, on and on and has taken the king thereof and the princes and led them with him to Babylon. Many of the evangelists and the leaders under Herbert Armstrong went right along with the program and had taken of the king's seed and made a covenant with him and has taken an oath of him. He has also taken the mighty of the land. So he took over the king's seed, the church, that which had been produced, that which had been planted and grown in the church. The Tkachas took over. And they had made a covenant with Mr. Armstrong that they would continue as he taught. You probably remember right after Herbert Armstrong's death that Joe Dukat said, we can't walk in his shoes, but we'll certainly follow his footsteps. <laughs> now there's a joke for you. He has also taken the mighty of the land, the leadership, much of the leadership went right along with it that the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift itself up. Now, my margin here says that the kingdom might be base to keep his covenant to stand to it. In other words, they would not live up to the covenant they made with Herbert Armstrong. They would go another direction. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt. This began back in the 70s, sending... Uh, the ministry to Fuller Seminary and various other Protestant places to be taught that they might give him horses and much people. Now what did he do? After Mr. Armstrong died, it wasn't very long until they got involved with uh, the Protestant movement. And they thought that they would prosper if they became a mainline evangelical Protestant. That they would do fine. And that they would, that would gain people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that does such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? I don't think that things have happened according to their expectations. They realized they'd lose some, but they thought once they got into uh, the mainstream of Protestantism that they would go upward and onward and just do a fine work on this earth. I'm sure that was in the back of their minds. They weren't, I don't think, willingly trying to just destroy the church. They were trying to destroy doctrine. They were trying to destroy that which had been built and the devotion to God that we had had and change it to a totally different direction. Verse 16, As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king, so Herbert Armstrong dwelled in Pasadena and apparently made Jodakash king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, even with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. And it wasn't too long after Herbert Armstrong died that Jodakot Sr. died as well. 
Now it's interesting that this continues on, and perhaps this is the next few verses are a work in process. Something that is continuing to happen has not fully happened yet, but Joe Jr. took over after his dad died, and uh, Daniel 5 came to my mind that Jodakash represented Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, against the church, seeking to, besieging the church, seeking, in a sense, to destroy it in that way. And Joe Jr. then might relate or be symptomatic of Belshazzar because Nebuchadnezzar had raided the temple of God, the church of God, destroyed much and taken away booty. Then his son threw a great party and began to devour that which God had had in the temple. And we see today the church being dismantled, the temple being dismantled, sold off piece by piece, and I wonder where the money is going. I would hate to be in the shoes of anyone who was doing that to the church today. So, perhaps from the king of Babylon now, in verse 17, there is a bit of a switch, because he, he now begins to talk about Egypt. Neither shall Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, make for him in the war. So, perhaps there's a switch here to those who are now in control, as opposed to the father. Uh, I want to read verse 17 in the New King James. It seems to make more sense. It says, Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company, with all his men under him, his minions, do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a siege wall to cut off many persons. But they're going to be ineffective when they try to cut us off. Many of us have simply left. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Remember Daniel 11 talks about those who forsake the covenant. When lo, he had given his hand. He shook hands. This administration that is there now. Shook hands and said, we will follow that which has gone before us. And has done all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live. Surely my oath that he has despised and my covenant that he has broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. And I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him, therefore, his treason that he has treasoned against me. There again, New King James uh, substituting treason for trespass. It's a better word there. <coughs> Many pled with Joe Sr. and Joe Jr. not to do what they were doing. That was the word of God coming through those people, pleading not to forsake the covenant. But they were totally ignored, and God says they will not go unpunished. And all his fugitives with all his band shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. That is happening today. And you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. This is a pronouncement and a judgment from God that the scattering will occur. Now, we have a change in tone, a change in attitude, and a change in direction. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one. He's going to provide a leader for us. 
Now this, of course, refers to Jesus Christ. All of these prophecies do ultimately refer to Christ. So don't get me wrong again, but God always works through a physical leader. The rebel bell at the very end time is a type of Christ and rebuilds the church. I will take a tender one. Now I lost my place here. And will plant it upon a high mountain and eminent, that is, in the church, Zion. A high mountain in Israel was referred to as Mount Zion. It was the seat of government. So he's going to plant this leader in the church, a tender one, and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. Not just a spreading vine this time, but a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In other words, this church... This branch, this remnant, is going to produce what it came from, a stately cedar, not a spreading vine. I hearken you, or hearken back to Richard's sermon on the mustard tree and how it grew and began to produce that which God did not want it to, which ties very well with Isaiah 5, where he says, I planted this vine, I did everything I could for it, and it brought forth wild grapes. What more could I have done? And then it says, I will destroy my vineyard. I will tear it apart. And that's exactly what he's talking about right here. It will be a goodly cedar, and under it it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And all the trees or churches of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree... I've dried up the green tree and have made the dry tree to flourish. That which was not producing much will produce much. That which was dry will become green. So God is going to do something different here. He's going to begin a restoration. And the new one will flourish that God establishes. Well, that's what we're reading about there in the book of Micah, chapter 4, a tree that flourishes. We will have one more companion chapter to go with us a little later on, but now I want to go back to the book of Micah. Oh, there's one point I forgot to bring out back there that I think is critical for us to understand, and that is that he says it is a rebellious house, and the question I pose to you It's a rebellious house that won't listen. Why do they not listen? Why does the church deny this message of Ezekiel, of Jeremiah, of Isaiah, of the minor prophets? Why do they not see that it applies to the church today? I came up with two broad answers to that. There are many, many other answers as well, but I think they probably would come under these two categories. First one is, why should a Philadelphian listen? doesn't apply to me. I am a Philadelphia. The Laodiceans are somewhere else. So this obviously does not apply to me. In other words, self-righteousness. We think we're okay. And therefore, there's no need to listen to a strong spirit of prophecy sermon. There's no sense in listening to something that says, Repent! when we've already got a ticket to the place of safety in the kingdom of God in our suitcase packed and ready to go since we're Philadelphia. And most of the church would like to think they're Philadelphians. 
but all slumbered and slept, including you and me. And some recognize that and are willing to admit that they have been Laodicean and are working hard at waking up and repenting. They're the ones who are willing to listen to this kind of message. But most do not because they simply don't think it applies. And the second reason is they love to hear smooth things. Isaiah 30.10, Amos 2, Amos 7, Ezekiel 33. Many, many scriptures say, preach to us the smooth things. We don't want to hear a harsh thing. We want to be comfortable. They just simply don't want to hear anything that's difficult. Talk to us about love. Two very good reasons why they rebel when they hear this kind of a message. Plus, perhaps, deep down, many people have a sneak and hunt. They're not as spiritually astute as they think they are. And therefore, they rebel at having anyone open the doors and show them what's inside their own heart and mind. That's another, probably, basic reason that we have a rebellious house who does not want to hear what these prophets have to say to us. But it's to you, and it's to me. And only a remnant is going to hear, brethren. Only a remnant is going to respond to God and come back to build the daughter of Zion. So, with that in mind, now let's go into Micah 5. He's told her to rise and thresh. Then he makes a comment here in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Now Barnes' commentary uh, says that this is referring to Judah as its antecedent, still speaking to Judah here. And that Judah had gathered together in bands of men employed in irregular marauding uh, banditry on other people. Judah is entitled daughter of troops on account of her violence, the robbery and bloodshed within her. And he refers to Micah 2.8, Hosea 5.10, and several other scriptures. Uh, one in Jeremiah. So he's saying <coughs> that what God is telling Judah or the split groups of the church is that you've had wrong motives. You've done the wrong thing. You've misused the people. You've made them pray and pay so that you could do your gospel thing. You have not taken care of the sheep in the way that I wanted them to. You've robbed them. You've slaughtered them. You've misused and abused them. So he says, now gather yourself in troops for a different reason, for protection, because I am going to punish you. Now that's Barnes' understanding of this particular verse, and it seems to fit in very well. Because it says, they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. There is no king, remember. There is no counselor overall in the church, as per chapter 4 and verse uh, 8 or 9, I guess it is. Verse 9. But we have a lot of men who have set themselves up as judges, who have set themselves up as leaders, and they're not doing the right thing, God says. So they will be smitten upon the cheek. But he makes an exception in verse 2. He says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth to me that is to be ruler in Israel, or the church, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. 
So this is an obvious reference to Jesus Christ who built the church, who will rebuild the church. But we will see that it is also speaking to the type working under Christ as a human whom Christ will work through to build the church. So that even as Christ came from Bethlehem, a very small village, and when they numbered Israel in terms of war, they numbered the cities in terms of thousands of fighting men that would be there. And Bethlehem never came up to scratch with a thousand men. So they combined it with another village, Ephrata, and together they counted it as one to try to muster up a thousand men. In other words, the branch that Christ uses is going to be very small among the thousands of Judah. Now, those who have broken off from Worldwide Church of God, there are probably, that are still in organized larger churches today, uh, what, 20, 25,000 at the most? So among the thousands of Judah, this one will have to really scratch to come up with a thousand. But out of that seemingly small group, he says, I will pick a leader. Reminds you of how God always does things. He picked David, the last son, out of the bunch that nobody even thought of, and other people in the same manner. Let's go back for a moment to Psalm 132 and see a little bit more about this, because he describes it somewhat. Psalm 132. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 4. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it at Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the wood. That's where the ark was taken from the, the field of the wood. So the ark of God is going to be placed here in Ephrata, Bethlehem, or the daughter of Zion, as he says in chapter 4. Verse 8. Arise, O Lord, into your rest. You and, your, and the ark of your strength, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. So as the church begins to be restored as a remnant, righteousness is a key. So we need to be looking for a daughter of Zion that is becoming righteous, that the ministry is turning it around and being a righteous ministry instead of an abuser of people. And the people will be happy again instead of feeling abused, maligned, and put upon. Verse 12, If your children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon your throne forevermore. So this is the beginning of a government that will last forever and ever under Jesus Christ. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell. His church, his bride is who he will dwell with forevermore. Verse, uh, chapter 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Mrs. Armstrong's favorite verse. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirt of his garments, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So through the daughter of Zion, which he will make his habitation and will make his bride ultimately, he will dwell and he will bring peace. That's what the book of Haggai tells us, chapter 2. In this place, the latter temple, I will bring peace. So we're seeing the beginnings here in this series of prophets about the church and about physical Israel ultimately, but about the church first. 
We're beginning to see the signs of how God is going to put this thing back together. That he is going to, again, give us leadership. We'll see that now uh, more clearly as we go on down here a little bit. Verse 3. Therefore will he give them up until the time that which she, that she which travails has brought forth. In other words, giving them up means he will withdraw his support, he will withdraw his attention, he will withdraw his protection, and they will be smitten until the daughter of Zion brings forth. Until the travail that she is going through has produced righteousness and holiness and that the new temple is being put together. So this, while, while the daughter of Zion is rising, is building, is starting, the church is still going to be going through a great deal of adversity, scattering, contempt, and so on. Verse 4, And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. Doesn't Zechariah 4 say, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. My strength, he says. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Zerubbabel and Joshua, as the two witnesses, are going to pronounce plagues and turn waters to blood and so on and so forth all over the earth. This is the beginning of that. This, this is the introduction of what God is going to do to the church. Now when? And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land. There's only one place we can go to look for peace, and that is where God is going to be working, where he is building his latter temple. When the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread on our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. So you see, it's not just Jesus Christ. It is a leader, a tender one, whom he has appointed, and he will have men working under him who will also confront the world. The Assyrian is not going to immediately just run over the church. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. So we are still going to be here, not in a place of safety, not gone off somewhere else, but we will be in our own land when the Assyrian comes into our land and we will confront him as a church, God's people, God's remnant wherever and however it takes shape. Now what does our land mean? Is this referring to Israel-Palestine? Now let's understand here what has happened. That the United States and British Commonwealth and Prophecy is one of the most fundamental keys of prophecy. We have the gates, or have had the gates, we're quickly losing them, and we are Israel today. We are spiritual Israel today. Where is spiritual Israel today? Pick a number, 90 to 98% of spiritual Israel is in the United States. That makes us the land of the Jews, the land of the spiritual Jews. That makes us the land of Judea. Let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains when the time comes that the abomination of desolation is set. Where? In the temple of God. 
So the church is part and parcel with it, and the church essentially is in the United States. It's also scattered in other parts of Israel, northwestern Europe, uh, Britain, Australia, here and there. But our land is that land which God gave us. My land is not Israel-Palestine. I wasn't born there. I wasn't, didn't grow up there. I was not converted there. In fact, in spiritual terms, God calls it today Sodom and Egypt in, in Revelation 11. He has not, as far as I know, even called anyone there ever. Richard Frankel and various other ones were sent there by Pasadena to be there as a representative of the church. And people went there for the feast, but as far as I know, no one was ever even converted there. Spiritual Israel, the land of the spiritual Jew in Judea, is here. Now, a key to understanding prophecy is that it has to be sometimes viewed from the perspective of where Israel is today, not where the prophecies were written from originally. Assyria has moved. It's now in Europe. Israel has moved. It's now in northwestern Europe, the United States, and scattered in a few other places around the world. The church, spiritual Israel, is not in Jerusalem anymore, the physical city. It has moved. It's in the United States. So the identification is based on their original locations, but to understand what will happen to them based on, it is understood based on where they are today. And we saw this in Ezekiel 17, where... Uh, Los Angeles is mentioned as the midst of Babylon because the church analogy fits the church was right in the middle of Babylon and in, in, in one sense we all felt terrible when we were in LA with all the smog and the crime and the, the dangers and all the heavy traffic and so on and so forth and we wanted out of there but God had set it there. We were in captivity there. We couldn't get out of there. And yet God says he's going to deliver us after 70 years whenever he starts counting it. So the symbols fit in this nation today to one degree or another. Now let's go back to Isaiah 41. Let me see how I'm doing here. I'm kind of losing track of time since we got started late. Uh, let's go back to Isaiah 41, which is a companion chapter to this, remember that Isaiah was written about the same time Micah was, and it was written under the same pressures, that is, of the Assyrian coming into the land. <clears throat> chapter 40, he says in verse 9, Behold your God, and uses the rest of that chapter then to speak of how Christ will feed his flock like a shepherd, and of the power of God, and so on and so forth. With that introduction then, let's go to Isaiah 41. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. He introduces what is about to happen here. Our strength is diminished. We have lost power. We have little spiritual strength. We have little strength to do any kind of a work on the earth. Let them come near. God wants his people finally to come near to him. Then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them as dust to his sword, and as driven to the stubble to his bow. So he begins to say, I am going to give power to the righteous man from the east whom I raise up. 
Uh, let's see, end of verse 6. Everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. Now these scriptures are very, very, put me very much in mind of Haggai. Be of good courage, God says there. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he the smooth with the hammer, him that smote the anvil. So in building the temple, people will begin to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to have a sense of of delight and excitement again as the church begins to be rebuilt. Verse 8, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. End uh, of verse 9, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you away. So God is going to, re- to preserve a remnant of Jacob. He's going to choose one. Fear thou not. Again, language sim- uh, the same exactly as uh, Haggai. For I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will hold, uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. So he tells the daughter of Zion there in Micah 4 that he is going to give her the first rule, the first dominion. He tells her she will have enemies. Then he tells her to rise and thresh, that she has a job to do. And he tells what will happen to her enemies. Verse 11, here. He gives more detail. Behold, all they that were incensed against you shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. They shall strive. They that strive with you shall perish. Those who come up against God's people, once God begins to put the remnant church back together, are not going to flourish at all. You read Ezra and Nehemiah about the enemies that came when they began to build the temple there. The Edomites showed up in various ones. And God worked it out so that they could build the temple in peace. Verse 14, for, uh, 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. Not a big part of Jacob here, but just a worm, just a remnant. Not a huge mammal, just a worm. So it is a humbled Jacob, a humbled house of Israel, a humbled people who will put it together who will not rise up in pride and, and indignity or indignant when God calls them alarm. They're people who have humbled themselves and realized, yes, we are one. We are not great Philadelphians with fine spiritual character, but we are sinners being led to repentance. I will help you. Notice verse 15, same language as Micah 4. Behold, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shall make the hills as chaff. The whole world is going to hate this remnant church, because its leaders are going to destroy with fire from their mouths anyone who try to hurt them. They cannot be touched, and they can give plagues wherever they want, wherever they want, it says in Revelation 11. God is going to give great power such as the church has never known. You shall fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and shall glory in the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And he will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shitta tree, or that is the acacia, the oil, uh, the fir tree, the pine, the box tree. Mention seven. He's going to take all seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 and bring a scattered remnant from all of them 
and build a remnant in the wilderness, that they may see and know and consider and understand together. Unity, peace, returns. How much is understood together today among the churches? Very, very little. I mean, we have the same basic doctrines, but everyone has a different focus and pays no attention to the other, ignores the other, talks the other down. <coughs> That's just the way we are. But God says that we will see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Produce your cause, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare us things for to come. See, the past is repeated. The past of Israel is repeated in the church here. Show the things that are come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. He's talking of those who will not listen to God. Produce your causes for the way you're thinking, he says. Verse 24, Behold, you are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooses you. O Lord, haven't we cast out devils in your name? Haven't we healed the sick? Haven't we done this? And haven't we done that? That's not talking about the Methodists and the Baptists. It's talking about those who have forsaken the covenant, those who have not treated God's people right. It's talking about the ministry of the church today. Depart from me. I know you not. You didn't treat my people the way I wanted my people treated. And then he says, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun. He shall call upon my name, and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treads clay. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? Who has told this? And before time that we may say, he is righteous, this leader that God appoints. Yea, there is none that shows. Yea, there is none that declares you. Yes, there is none that hears your words. The church as a whole is not listening to what these prophets are telling us. They're not listening to what God is going to do with the church here at the end. No one hears the words of Isaiah. They don't grasp it because they think they're okay. The first shall say to Zion, Behold them, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor. See, the same context as Micah 4. No counselor, no king. Same context as Isaiah 51 and 52 and many other scriptures. That when I asked of them, could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. And there is wind and confusion in the church overall today. And until God gives a clear job to a particular person to do that job, this, content, this confusion and vanity will continue. They will try to continue to do this work and that work. Preach the gospel here, do this and that, and they'll fall on their faces. Because that isn't what God's doing. God is doing something else. But when you have your head in a rut and you never look up to see what's going on, you don't know what God is doing. You just continue doing what you're doing, thinking you're doing the right thing. And therefore cannot see what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, all these people have to say to us. We need to understand, brethren. Now let's go back to the book of Micah. I'm going to try to finish this up, and I think we can. It isn't too technical or detailed from here on out. Uh, it's important, but it's not something that takes a great deal of explanation. Now I think we stopped here in verse uh, at the end of verse 6. <clears throat> when the Assyrian is coming into our land, and we saw there in Isaiah 41 how God will make us a threshing instrument. I say us. I mean those who are repentant and humble and contrite, as we'll see a little later on here in the book of Micah. And I hope that I'm one of them. So I, I say us because I want to be positive about this. We'll see how God puts it together. Verse 7, And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass, that tarries not for man, nor waits for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, a lion among the beasts of the forest. Now there's a contrast for you. I didn't read that in, in Isaiah 41. Right at the end it talks there about how uh, those, the, the leadership that God is going to appoint is going to thresh, how it is going to uh, have power over other princes and leaders of this world. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 42, it talks about how the leadership will not bruise a reed and that type of thing. And, and it almost sounds like a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction. You're seeing both the goodness and the severity of Christ here. On the one hand, God is going to show great mercy through his new leadership, and on the other hand, he's going to make them as a lion among beasts. So there's going to be two sides to that personality, one kind and gentle and loving toward those who are contrite and humble and seeking to serve God, and very, very harsh and severe against those who are against what God is doing. Verse 9, Your hand shall be lifted up upon your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. It shall come to pass, and that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses out of the midst of you, and I will destroy your chariots. In other words, you will no longer depend on yourselves, on your own hand, your own might, because I am going to fight your battles for you. And wherever enemies come from, I will take care of them. I will cut off witchcrafts. No more soothsaying in verse 12. Your graven images will I cut off, verse 13. So he's going to take paganism and false doctrine and those things of Babylon that have been a, a part of us away. I will pluck up the groves, verse 14, out of the midst of you, so, so I will destroy your cities. My margin says enemies there. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen such as they have not heard. So God is going to take an active hand and protect and preserve that which he is beginning to build. Now we get another dose of reality in chapter 6. Hear you now what the Lord says. Arise, contend before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Lift it up, in other words. Be heard. Hear, O you mountains, you governments, you peoples, the Lord's controversy, and you strong foundations of the earth, that which seems to be strong. Listen to this, he says. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. He is not happy with the way things are. He's just given us a glimpse of what he is about to do with the remnant of his church. Then he comes back to the reality of where we still are, even as the daughter of Zion travails in birth to bring forth that which God wants her to produce. But there are still problems. 
O my people, what have I done to you? Wherein have I wearied you? Testify against me. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He brought us out of worldwide church of God in that sense. He saw us to the door. He showed us the way and redeemed you out of the house of servants. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So he's going way back in history to show that he's always cared about his people. And that principle applies to us today in the church. That he brought us out. He showed us that they were wrong. And we tried them as false apostles and found that they were not true. He did this, the end of verse 5, that we might know the righteousness of the Lord. That he is still there. And that he is righteous and that he will take care of his people even as he promised to Abraham that he would. Verse 6, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Is he happy with the blood of bull and goats and so on? No. All of the things that we might do before God in our vanity, our ego, our selfishness, our self-righteousness, all of the sacrifice we might do with the wrong attitude for vanity and for ego's sake and to exalt ourselves, He's not interested in that. Here's what he's interested in. Here is the crux of the whole matter, brethren. Here is the verse we need to zero in on. Verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This is what God is after. When all the smoke clears, when all the pressure has subsided, when all the scattering has been accomplished, when the chastening and the scourging has been accomplished, God is going to look to the people who do justly, who walk according to his ways, his laws, his desires, to those who love mercy. Now, sometimes we do not wish to give mercy. We like to be hard-nosed and not be forgiving and loving and kind and gentle with people who have sinned, and we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We want to be hard. We want to be harsh. We want to be judgmental and condemnative. And if we are convinced we should show mercy, often it is grudgingly. Often it is with an edge to it. He says here he is looking for people who love mercy, who just can't stand to wait to forgive someone. How many people in God's church do you know today like that? And to walk humbly with their God. Not in vanity, not in ego, not in pride, not in selfishness, not in self-exaltation but humbly. You have to have these three qualities, brethren, in order to have unity and peace in the church. You cannot live in peace without these three qualities. And that's why we fight and war among ourselves, as James says. Vanity, ego, jealousy, and so on. This is the crux of this prophecy and all the prophecies. To this man will I look, to him that is contrite and humble. Verse 9, the Lord's voice cries to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see your name. Hear you the rod, and who has appointed it? God is saying, I am going to appoint the daughter of Zion, 
the first dominion, the first rule. I'll give her the rod. He said, look around, find the one that I am appointing, and listen. Hear it. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is abominable? Do we still push and pull and cheat each other spiritually and abuse? It's still going on in God's church. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances? Verse 12, For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. We still see spiritual violence going on all around us. Now this will apply eventually, yes, to the nation. But I'm talking spiritually here, to the church. Verse 13, Therefore also will I make you sick in smiting you, and making you desolate because of your sins. Now the ministry gets a great deal of the blame for what has happened, but he's talking to all of us here. And we are being smitten because of our sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and the casting down shall be in the midst of you. And you shall take hold, but you shall not deliver. But that which you do deliver will I give up to the sword. So whatever you try to do as a church, as an organization, as a people, God says, I'll hit on it. You shall sow, but you shall not reap. You shall tread the olives, but you shall not anoint you with oil. And sweet wine, but you shall not drink. In other words, you're going to have to try to keep a stiff upper lip, and you're going to say, well, we're sowing the gospel here, and we're doing this, and we're doing that, and you're going to have to count the dog, and maybe even his fleas, to try to keep your numbers like they're climbing or looking good. But all the time, you're shrinking. The unsanitarized church of God. Because everything that is done is not accomplishing anything under these circumstances, God says. It must be truly frustrating to be trying to do Herbert Armstrong's job when he completed it and God's doing something entirely different and with terribly mixed and usually negative results. I'm glad that we see that that is not what we should be doing, but we should be trying to heal that which has been broken and torn and help the bride of Christ prepare herself. For the statutes of Omri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you walk in their counsels, that I should make you a desolation. Omri and Ahab were, well, Omri was, he said, the wickedest king up until his time. And Ahab was even worse, who followed Omri. And there is a tie-in pretty directly here to the church, really, because Ahab married Jezebel uh, in Kings. But you go back to Revelation 2 and 3, and there is the presence of Jezebel in the seven churches. So the doctrines of Ahab and of Omri are in the church today. And Jezebel is in the church today. They followed the sins of Jeroboam. Go back and read it. I don't have time to go through that all right now. Right after this, Elijah appeared after the worst kings and the worst kind of leadership that Israel had ever known. And he started killing the prophets of Baal. And I believe that that is going to happen in the church again today. Now God is reflecting now in chapter 7. And he said, Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruit. It's just like peach and apricot and, and plum season. And as the great leanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. 
Here it is, time for the harvest, God says. And my, my appetite and my, diet, my uh, digestive juices all going for the first ripe fruit and the sweet grapes off the vine. And the first fruits aren't ready. They're not ripe. And I cannot imbibe. That's the deplorable position we find ourselves in now. The bride is not ready to marry. The grapes are not ready to harvest. God cannot enjoy that which he planted. It brought forth wild grapes. It has brought forth unripe grapes here, I think he's saying. The godly or merciful man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. He says we're selfish, brethren. He says we're doing our own thing, and we don't care who we hurt in getting it done. And that the church of God is that way today. You and me and others. That they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asks, and a judge, the judge asks for a reward, and the great man, he utters his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. Everyone bow to the leaders. Let them make their desire known. We'll wrap it up for them and let them take it home with them. In other words, there's a great deal of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, respect to persons. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your visitation comes. Now shall be their perplexity. All these things that the watchman, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the others warned about, he says, now it's coming upon you. I wrote this in here about you. Now it's happening to you. And I can't stand here and say it's somebody else, brethren. This is written to the church, and I'm part of it. I have to get rid of my selfishness. I have to get rid of my own desires. I have to get rid of any exultation, ego, vanity, self-righteousness, selfishness. Those have to be cut out of me. And they have to be cut out of you. And God says if we don't cut them out, this day that Ezekiel and Jeremiah warned about would come upon us. And, and we're right in the middle of it. Trust not in a friend, verse 5. Put not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. For the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. In the church today, you don't know who to trust. You don't know who to believe. You don't know whose word is good. There is so much mistrust, distrust, fear, hurt, but we don't know what to think. And that is church-wide. The ministry is not trusted. There is no confidence. Oh, a little here and there. We eat what is spoken, but we are not filled. It isn't, it doesn't ring true. It doesn't hit home. We hear the smooth things. I'm speaking church-wide now. We like to hear the smooth things. But it doesn't feed us because there's that nagging doubt in our mind that we know deep down that isn't really the truth. That isn't really what's going on in the church. And therefore it does not satisfy. Now if you hear a message of repentance, and you hear a message that God, where God says, I am doing this to you, it may hurt. But it has to ring true, because we all know 
but deep down inside us, in spite of all of our bluster and all of the pretty face we put in front of each other, that we have a lot of growing and overcoming to do. And that's what he told all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Repent and overcome, and I will grant you to sit. We know deep down that's the message we need to hear. Verse 7, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We can't trust men. We'd better get on our knees, straighten out a relationship with God, and trust Him. That's where Micah is pointing us here. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to me. So he's saying right here, we're going to sit in darkness, and we are going to fall. We're going to have difficulties. But God will be the light. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to become bitter. I'm not going to say God has gone way off and doesn't hear us anymore. We have to bear it. We have to go through this chastening, this scourging, this punishment, this scattering that God has put on us because I have sinned. And he, until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. So you see, if we will humble ourselves, seek mercy toward our brothers, we're going to be judged just like we judge someone else, he says very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. He promises us he will judge us just like we judge each other. Now, it might make us think twice now before we condemn a brother. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is my enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her, which said to me, Where is the Lord your God? The remnant is going to be scourged, punished, hurt, humbled, just like everyone else. And that's what makes her the righteous remnant, is that she does become humble. She does learn to live in peace and mercy with her brother. And then when God begins to answer and begins to perform when we pray. When he begins to answer our prayers and return joy and peace and unity, then they'll say, hmm, I'm ashamed for having condemned. Verse 11, In that day that your walls are to be built, the breaches to be healed. He's talking about the rebuilding of the latter temple. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. The breach is healed, the walls rebuilt. In that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also he shall come even to you from Assyria, and from the fortified cities, and from the fortress, even to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. So this thing is going to last clear through until the Assyrian comes into the land and God is going to punish this nation along with the church because of the fruit of our doings. But, feed your people with your rod. Remember, he's going to give rule, first dominion to the daughter of Zion. And he says there is where we are going to find the answers. Feed your people with the rod, the flock of your heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood in the midst of Carmel. Feed them and let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. He mentioned several places where the shepherds took their flocks, where there was plenty of water, plenty of grass. 
good nourishment and protection. God is going to give the church that, his remnant people. In fact, Jeremiah 23, 8 says it's going to be a deliverance greater than that of Egypt, so that that one will even be forgotten. Verse 15, according to the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show to him marvelous things. What a deliverance God has planned for those who will be what? Just, merciful, and humble. That's to whom this applies. The nations shall see, shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. They're going to fear God. They're going to see what God has done for his people, to deliver his people. Satan the devil is going to come heavily persecuting his people. Revelation 12. God is going to remove them and take them to an area in the mountains where they will live solitarily and in peace and happiness. Verse 18. Who is God? Who is a God like to you that pardons iniquity? See, God shows his mercy and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Those who are humble and merciful and just are going to protect, be protected while the rest go right on into the great tribulation, the physical tribulation, not just spiritual. He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Now there it is. I said those that love mercy, remember? Here he says that he delights in mercy. He just can hardly wait to be merciful. God is not enjoying what he's doing to you and me right now. It grieves him deeply. It hurts him. Like parents used to tell their children, that's going to hurt me a whole lot more than it hurts you. And the kid said, yeah, right. But it does hurt God. But he has to punish and chasten the apple of his eye so desperately to get us to see that we need to cut the worms out and be good apples. He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. This is so encouraging, so happy, so delightful to know that as soon as this is done, for those who respond properly, God is going to bless us as he has never blessed us before. You will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God says, I have sworn by my name that I will bring a remnant through this, they will be humble, and I will delight and showing mercy to them, forgiving their sins, and blessing them the same way I told Abraham I would bless them. So God has sworn it. All you and I have to do now is live it. And we will be delivered. Travail, brethren. Be in pain. Deliver. Bring forth the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. And you and I and everyone who does will be included in the latter temple in which we will have unity and peace and comfort and blessing forevermore. End of transmission.